to episode 147 of page one the writers podcast i'm Tarek. i'm marco and thanks for joining us on uh, the writers podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible and obviously we've got a huge number of great past guests there uh, from the world of uh, books from screenwriters comic writers video game writers journalists comedians so Please do check out the back catalogue if you haven't done that before. But this week we are in the world of, we're sort of in two worlds, historical crime and modern day crime. Yeah, indeed. We're chatting with Elle Connell. And Elle is a, both, as Margaret says, both a modern crime writer, uh, but she also writes historical fiction under her real name, Lucy Ribchester. And uh, she kind of bounces between historical crime fiction and modern crime books and uh, and she's had a lot of success her modern day crime books was a Val McDermott New Blood pick it was a Watterson's Edinburgh book of the year um, you know and, and, and it's interesting chatting to someone who uses two different names jumps between two different genres and, and builds two different audiences up yeah I mean we've spoken to a few people that have pseudonyms and you know for that reason because they're writing in different genres um, which can be you know, I can see the sense in it, but obviously it's almost like you're starting again in some ways when you when you write that first yeah, book under the yeah. pseudonym. But we also chat about, you know, sometimes when people write more modern crime fiction, if, if women are told, use your initials because men won't buy books, by, especially thriller books by by women, which is nonsense. Um, yeah. And we we chat to Lucy about that and, and you know, she explains why she very much didn't want to do that and wanted to have make it clear that the book was written by a woman and we also chat about her historical crime fiction as well her first book she she pitched it as angela carter meets dan brown which very much makes me want to read it now yeah and her latest book is you can stay which uh came out in april last year um and it's a kind of modern day ses soldier marine royal marine i think it is about uh, uh, yeah about their training yeah, yeah, and one aspect of having to, they get handed a chicken and they have to, they get close to the chicken and then they have to kill the chicken. They're told to kill the chicken at the end. Yeah, that's right. Very bizarre. Brutal but training. Yeah, yeah, very brutal. Um, but yeah, we chat to her all about that. So um, it's a really interesting episode. So we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. 
As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Yes, I, yes, I did. Yeah, in a nutshell, basically. Um, Yeah, although I don't think I ever thought that I would be a writer. (laughs) Probably a lot of writers feel that way. Um, Yeah, yeah, you're you're still sort of gobsmacked when you get your first book published. But yeah, basically, I think I, I do remember coming home from primary school, either primary one or two, and we'd been asked to uh, write a poem. And uh, just thinking that this was the best, the best thing I'd ever done in school, you know, being able to, instead of just uh, reading or listening to, um, to work, being asked to kind of create your own. Um, and a lot of what I used to write, a lot of what I still write, to be honest, I still think of it as pastiche fan fiction for the books that I love. Um, uh, throughout childhood, then whenever I really got um, into an author, whether that was Enid Blyton's um not the famous five what are they called the mysteries the one where they say uh, solve. no it wasn't the secret seven it was the one where they solve all those really kind of twee cozy crimes <laughs> um <laughs> the five find outers that's it um okay. things like Never the heard of those. pantomime cat and uh, you know it's it's classic blighton it's um yeah very uh questionable not kind of thing <laughs> i would want to revisit in a hurry yeah you know, for all kinds of reasons it's nice to live on in the memory of what it was like as a child and leave it yeah <laughs> um uh, but yeah i would write my own kind of um i suppose fan fiction responses to that and then later on when i was a little bit older got really into christopher pike and started to write um kind of pastiches on that you know, just going through the whole gamut, right through to, I remember discovering Linda LaPlante's novels and, you know, the that was really my first foray into crime fiction. And mm. there was something about peeling open the covers and finding the kind of dark side of the world lying within those pages that was just really, really fascinating and started me off, I think, on a, a bit of a trajectory towards writing slightly darker stuff that's um, gone up and down with my writing career, but it's certainly coming out, I think it's fair to say, in the O'Connell books. And and obviously uh, you always enjoyed writing and things like that, and I think you studied English at uni and stuff like that, yeah. but uh, how did you make that that sort of transition into actually, you know, I'm going to send this book or whatever it is out uh, to someone? Where, how did that happen? 
so it took a really long time um and when I was at university and even for a few years afterwards uh, I went down to London to do a master's in um it was in Shakespeare studies but it was really you know it was it was theatre that I was really really interested in and passionate about throughout basically my kind of late teenage years right through university right through the few years following university I had this absolute conviction that I wanted to become a playwright um a lot of what I read in my later teenage years was was plays it just got completely um into and fascinated by the idea of like bringing dialogue to life and subtext and all of that kind of stuff um and uh, so once I finished my master's then I enrolled on the Royal Court's Young Writers Programme uh had a really fantastic time and learned a lot in that very intensive 10-week course and produced uh, the Hourglass Factory uh, didn't pro- sorry produced a script of the Hourglass Factory um for my kind of end of course project okay uh and I kind of tried to get that off the ground not very hard with groups of friends I knew that were actors and I think it was around about that time that I kind of discovered that while I might have the inclination towards playwriting from a kind of writing perspective there was all the other stuff that went along with that like um you know like the practicalities I suppose of just getting a play off the ground without yeah. the backing of like a, a you know a major theater you have to organize actors for a read-through and so it, it seemed to me that at the time of life that I was at where I was working full-time it was just much more natural for me to kind of go back into rediscovering prose and a love of prose um fiction uh and and I think that was when I kind of returned to the idea of crime fiction um the crime fiction has always been the books that I turned to or had always been the books I turned to in my downtime. So, you know, when I wasn't studying uh, literature at university, in the holidays, I would read crime fiction. I would read Agatha mm-hmm. Christie's. Um, and and I think it was just kind of that realisation of actually, you know, you, everybody says you should write what you love, write what you're passionate about. And that kind of that kind of clicked, you know, well, actually, I'm really into this. this is the books I choose yeah. to read, you know, when yeah. maybe I should yeah. be trying to write this instead of um, trying to write something that I'm kind of, that I read because it's uh, aspirational or anything like that. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I rewrote The Hourglass Factory as a kind of crime thriller uh, and all of the, the other influences that were already there, like my kind of interest in feminism, in the kind of um, fantastical, larger-than-life characters. Um, I also, I re- by that point, I was reviewing dance. I'd started to review dance and, and cabaret and burlesque, and it was really the kind of the, the late... What do you call the two thousand and the two thousands? No, the late noughties. The, the yeah, late the, no, yeah, yeah, noughties. I late think noughties. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Late noughties. Yeah, sounds weird. I think so. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, there was like that massive kind of burlesque revival around that time, and so that all seeped into the Hourglass Factory. But it took me from starting to write that um, that as a crime novel to uh, signing the book deal with Simon and Schuster. It took about six years. Uh, so it was a really slow pro- progress process. Progress. It was a really slow progress, um, and within that time, I got an agent. I won a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award. That was the best thing. Um, well, I will rhapsodise about the Scottish Book Trust <laughs> until the cows come home because it was honestly they continue to be such an incredible force for good and um, strong um, kind of backbone to like my whole career. And they're just such brilliant. It's such a brilliant organization and they do such brilliant things to support writers but that was really the kind of turning point from um become from it becoming something where i was kind of had a bit of a pipe dream to something where i felt like people were actually behind me yeah. um 
what does winning that because uh, you know i have uh, I've, I've heard of that award and stuff but what does winning that actually mean i think do they give you mentorship and things like that exactly yeah so it can mean um it can it can be tailored to kind of what's helpful to you as a writer um they do give you a financial package which at that time i'd just gone freelance as a, a writer as a, well as a as a writer copywriter journalist tutor all the different you know offshoots of writing and so that gave me a couple of months to sort of solidly focus on writing fiction, you know, without any guilt of thinking, well, I'm taking time and money away from more sensible income streams. Um, there's also the mentoring package. So I worked with Linda Cracknell, the short story writer. I specifically, because I had an agent at that point for my novel, for The Hourglass Factory, then I specifically wanted to work on craft, particularly short story craft. Um, and so Linda was just absolutely invaluable in putting me through my paces and really trying to like hone my writing on the line level, the structure level. Um, they also provide training in uh, publicity, helping you, for example, get your website off the ground, get your presence on Twitter um, and performance uh, technique as well. We did a workshop with a, um, what was, what, what, how would I describe, how would I describe her, a performance specialist? But, you know, training in, in how to read your work aloud and okay. um uh, all that kind of stuff it was just but they wow. were also more than anything else they were just uh, um, a sounding board you know if you had a question because uh, you know as you'll know yourself like the industry can be quite it can be quite difficult to navigate I think and you don't kind of know who to trust always you don't necessarily know um, what to believe when you're being told there's so many different paths to being a writer and the Scottish Book Trust were just there to kind of say no no you know, you should be taking yourself seriously. You should be getting paid for this. You shouldn't be letting anybody do this to you or, or, or make mm -hmm. you feel like this is just a hobby or, you know, anything like that. They were just a really solid, it's like having a really kind of solid fairy godmother in your corner. <laughs> and, and, and you mentioned that during that, that phase, you, you found your agent. And, and how did you go about doing that? Was it, did you go down the kind of classical route of sending out applications with, you know, synopsis and chapters, etc.? I did, yeah. I sent out a whole bunch of them. Um, and I would also I also just ask anybody that I knew that was even remotely connected to the book industry, who their agents were or who, uh, you know, or who, if they knew anyone that was uh, an agent. And eventually I actually got my agent through a contact of a contact of a contact. Right. It was someone who I said, you know, do you know anyone who's a literary agent? No, but I know somebody who might. OK, <laughs> no, but I know somebody else who might. And eventually um, I'd so. In that respect, then my agent's Daisy Parente is a Lutchins and Rubenstein, and I just feel like really, really um, lucky to have, have found her. You know, it was a long process, but I think, um, you know, she was really starting out her career as an agent round about the time when my manuscript landed on her desk. And I had another agent who had gone down the more traditional route of just submission, sending mm. out, who I was working with the manuscript on at the time, and she was a very big name, and I wasn't quite comfortable with the direction that she was pushing me in although okay. she was a big name I felt kind of like I wasn't really you know I wasn't really on board it would be like I would be making changes to my manuscripts in order to try and produce something for the market rather yeah. than what I set out to do and when I had my initial kind of email exchange or phone call I can't remember what it was with Daisy and she just name checked several books that I loved and that I really wanted to to write in that vein of and I just yeah. felt like she understood what I wanted to do and that's gone throughout because I've written you know I've written vastly different books um at various phases of my career and uh you know my agent has been so amenable to that it's been incredible um she's never tried to push me into doing anything that I didn't want to do 
and that's uh, that's been the most valuable thing the most valuable part of the relationship i think it's it's quite a it's quite a bold but important move isn't it i think and especially for a, a new author who's just found an agent and often you kind of think well that's it i found them i don't want to yeah yeah but hold on tight and 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 just and just do what do what they tell me because they know best and i think having that kind of the guts to say actually this is not going the way i want it to go and and that interplay between commercialism and art and stuff and trying to navigate where where you want to land on that scale and saying this isn't for me is quite hard so that's that's quite impressive thanks i still i've done this a few times where you know it's that that thing of like am i making the right decision or am i being a complete and utter idiot (laughs) i think sometimes sometimes it's a bit of both you know like there's a short route to success but is it necessarily you know you do have to think like is this necessarily what i want to be doing because you know if you get i think when i found this you know i've sort of slightly changed tack with my historical fiction writing and i find that if you know if you get off on the wrong foot i think it is very very difficult to get out of that um it's very difficult i think to change the way a publisher is branding you Mm -hmm. that that is very very challenging and so i think you you really 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 need to be happy with the direction that you're going on in because hopefully you know if it's a success then you'll be writing for the next however many years Um, i also think as well that it is such an important thing to do I, i totally get the the new writer fear of like I must do what they they're telling me they're the experts and it's been so hard to find someone I'm going to do what they say but it's not like writing a book is an easy task and a quick task that you can just fire off so if you're you know if you project a, a few years into the future and think well do I want to be writing these sorts of books that I'm being pushed into um you know it is worth reflecting on I think in in that situation Definitely, um, and and you touched on there that obviously you started off in um, sort of historical crime fiction uh, under the name uh, uh, under your real name Lucy uh, <laughs> Ribchester. Um, uh, you know how how did that first how did you sell that first book? How did that come come about? Um, how did we? I think I think I pitched it to Daisy as. Angela Carter meets Dan Brown, (laughs) (laughs) which are genuinely two of my favorite authors. Um, It was, I wrote the book that I wanted to read. um, And and that was kind of, the Hourglass Factory still still stand by that. That was the book that I really, really, really wanted to read. And I really wanted to revisit those characters and do a series at some point. Nobody, everybody I meet, every other author is like, have you thought about doing a series? Because publishers love series. And I'm like, every time I mention this to my agent or anybody in the book industry, they're like, no, 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 no series. The series are gone. And uh, But oh, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. You just hear, but again, it's one of these things. You just hear conflicting things, don't you? Um, yeah, that was kind of how I sold that book. And uh, and then it sort of slightly shape-shifted in the editorial process. But I think, you know, I think, in the in the end, then I think Simon and Schuster just got you know the cover just bang on. I don't know if you've mm. seen that wonderful yellow cover the yellow that they yeah, really hand cool. designed, and it was it's just stunning. I've got a poster of it up in my kids' bedroom, um, and I will forever treasure it. It's it, it just couldn't have been it just couldn't have been better <laughs> the way it was kind of um, brought out into the world in the end. And and we've we've chatted to publishers before, and you know, and you, you mentioned it yourself. Um, how it's when you're marketed in a certain way it's hard to break out of that mm. and you, you know his, historical and crime are two genres that you don't 
see a lot of books mashed together in that style and you know did was it what i wondered if it was difficult getting it picked up um did you have to focus on more one angle more than the other or did they market it with one focus that is a really interesting question actually yes um yeah i so i didn't because i was reading a lot of historical crime i really like cj sansom who um, mm. writes the shard like mysteries and yeah. i also really love i think he's only written two books to date but um jed is this an, is it rubenfeld jed rubenfeld yeah who wrote yeah. the interpretation of murder yeah. and then yeah, 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 the death yeah. instinct i love those book. books yeah. i thought the interpretation of murder was just absolutely fantastic um and so that was one of the books that my agent um mentioned when she first read hourglass factory and said oh i think it's you know i think there's interpretation of murder meets possibly a bit of night circus and um so it that, that in that respect it wasn't difficult however i do remember having a conversation with someone at sns way 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 further down the line once amber shadows had been published and um hourglass factory had been picked up by a lot of crime uh, festivals and crime publications and really really the crime, the crime, I was going to say the crime community, I should say the crime writing community <laughs> is one of the most friendly mm -hmm. and welcoming communities, yeah. I think, in the book world. It really, really is. And I just felt so at home anytime I was in a room with other crime writers having in the year that Hourglass Factory came out. Um, but in saying that, the, I had this conversation a couple of years later with somebody at SNS who was kind of baffled by the idea that I thought my books were crime books because they 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 really saw them as historical novels first and foremost and i never did i always saw them as crime first and foremost i've always been interested in the historical setting and mm -hmm. it's not, i've never wanted to kind of project a story that wouldn't um have been have come naturally from the era but i've yeah. always you know like i said i've always had this 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 um affinity for pastiche and i think with with any crime novel that I approach that I'm writing in a, in a historical context, I'm really, really influenced by the crime fiction of that era. So for example, with Hourglass Factory, um, I've forgotten the name now. I forgot there's two, there's two authors. Oh, who was it that wrote The Man Who Was Thursday? G.K. Chesterton. Oh, G.K. Yeah. Chesterton. Yeah. And also um, there was another, Edgar, uh, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> Hourglass so Factory, I'm going like, way. this is way, way, way too kids. <laughs> I'm thinking back to pre-kids pre eating my brain. Um, but yeah, the, that, the sort of lurid, fantastical, kind of almost um, spy fiction-y, over-the-top, steampunk-esque yeah, kind yeah. of books that were part of the Edwardian era, very much influenced Hourglass Factory's kind of plot and pacing. And in The Amber Shadows, I was very much influenced by um, not just the kind of golden age, noir -y crime fiction of the period, but predominantly my love of Hitchcock films. So in that respect, it's always kind of crime, the crime and historical angles have always married together very, very closely for me. But I can see, I can see that, you know, I can see why um, some people might view them as one or the other, mm. or as historical novels. It's, it's a weird thing though, because, uh, you know, what is a historical novel? Yeah. A historical novel yeah. is always yeah. something else told in that time period you know totally. it, it will it'll be a different yeah you're right type of novel yeah. but yeah, there'll always yeah, be another element yeah. to it yeah. you know so i suppose it is it is all about sort of how they choose to market it or whatever but exactly um, yeah it, and one thing that we've we've spoken about with people who have written historical novels is that sort of pull and push between accuracy and authenticity and how you know how 
accurate you want to be about specific dates or things or you know things like that as opposed to just getting the feel of the time period and stuff uh, correct what, where do you fall on that scale so i think as an author your responsibility is to the story that you're telling mm-hmm. um and i think in that respect then personally if that means um if that means moving around a historical date or, I mean, it's not that I would set out to mess around with mm-hmm. history, but when I set out to write a book, it's because I'm inspired or drawn to a particular period in history. And that comes from a sort of feeling rather than necessarily wanting, wanting a kind of rigorous historical replica. You know, yeah. I suppose it's the difference between like building a scale model of, St. Paul's Cathedral, say, and like wanting to do a kind of clay impression of it, yeah. you know, or yeah. like uh, yeah. the difference yeah. between a draftsman sketch and a impressionist painting. And I definitely would fall more on the kind of impressionist painting side that I want to capture a kind of an essence of an era, but also that captures an essence of how I see the world or how yeah. I interpret the world um, and the, how those two things kind of merge together. So that's not to say that I'm not. Um, a stickler for detail I do like to research thoroughly it's just that I don't like to be I don't like my research to get in the way of what I'm writing and in that respect then I don't I'm learning more and more the more I kind of the more the more historical fiction I write and the more fiction in general I write that what I don't want to do is stop halfway through a scene and think oh god I don't know that so I'm going to go digging back through my notes until I Mm -hmm. find the answer and if I can't find the answer I'm going to spend a day at the library finding the answer you know I would rather and then by that point, you know, you've interrupted the flow of what it is yeah, you're writing. Yeah. I would rather just flow on making things up, making things up that kind of feel appropriate to me as yeah. well, or changing slight details. For um, You Can Stay, then it's obviously set, it's got a contemporary setting, um, but it very much focuses on um, the selection process for special forces in the military. And I, um, I, I did a few Zoom interviews with um, former soldiers read um autobiographies of former special forces soldiers and had you know what i felt was a sort of fairly solid grasp of what i wanted to know about that selection process but there were still elements in it so for example there's a a quite a disturbing scene earlier on when um a lamb is slaughtered as part of the um survival outside outdoors um uh, training and uh, that came from a uh, um a soldier who told me about having to uh, keep a chicken on his person sort of look after it inside his coat kind of um snuggle with it uh all for 24 hours they had to give it a name um all of these kind of things wow. to sort of help help create a bond between a person and animal and then at the end of that period had to kill it um and you know I, I found that quite sort of disturbing and, and quite irrelevant to the themes that i wanted to um explore those particularly those of like humanity and killing um but to me the the chicken i i I just you know i just wanted i wanted to i wanted to um go a little bit further with that so i made it a lamb instead of a chicken um because to me a lamb being i suppose a mammal had kind of it had more associations of Mm -hmm. kind of cutesiness and there was something more disturbing so and because it's a horror novel, you know, you want to sort of take, you want to take facts and then push them, push their truths further to as far as you can push those truths, I think. And so in that respect, then I, I do, you, I do, I did take creative license, but it was kind of a, it wasn't like a, it wasn't cavalier. 
you know yeah. it was very much a decision yeah. something yeah sense? yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean I, th I think that's it isn't it you, you want to do the research so that you know you, you know the the area that you're writing in but then yeah. as you say it, the, you want to tell the story a good story and you're doing that on, on the basis of having a good grounding in that area and so sure. I, th I think it if you're too loyal to the research, it can really pull down the story sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, well you mentioned there that you, you made the jump to modern day. Mm. Um, with uh, Your first book was Down by the Water. Yeah. That was your first jump to modern day times. And I wondered, why did you decide to do that? Um, so the big, um, I suppose the big life change that happened there was I had twins. Um, and uh, that may not sound connected to making the transition <laughs> to write really dark psychological <laughs> thrillers. Um, but it did actually, uh, you know, it's quite a sort of profoundly disturbing and, and discombobulating time um, becoming a parent and particularly the sort of um, uh, baptism of fire that is looking after two small babies at once. Um, yeah, there was, so there was that. There was a lot of sort of stuff that I wanted to unpick. And that there's a lot of that that comes out in Down by the Water. Um, but there was also more pragmatic reasons. So, I mean, I've always wanted to write. I had always wanted to write contemporary thrillers. And I knew at some point that I might do that. And I didn't know when that would be. Mm -hmm. um, and I had actually written another historical uh, novel that I kind of finished the first draft of the day um, before I went into hospital. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was working on edits of that throughout the first year of, of looking after looking after baby twins. And uh, it was a bit of a mess, that book. It went out on submission. We couldn't find a publisher for it. I'm not really surprised. And I'm actually very glad that we didn't find a publisher because I think if I had found someone that had sort of picked it up, taken a chance on it, I don't think it would be a book that I was particularly proud of to have out. Okay. Um, so, so at that point, then I kind of sort of changed tack. I knew I had to start writing again. I knew I wanted to start writing fiction again. And uh, and I needed to do something that didn't require a whole lot of um, spending days in the library, uh, which I just didn't have. Um, so yeah, so I chatted with my agent, and um, she uh, she was she was really this is this was one of the the um, the moments where I thought she think she was at her finest as an agent was just very flexible and said let's see what we can do and um, put some feelers out and there was an ed editor who was looking for. A thriller writer um and we we sort of discussed uh we discussed an idea and um and i was really really i really found a way in which i could explore the things that i wanted to explore you know down by the water does deal with postnatal depression it deals with kind of growing older and um settling scores from the past uh, it deals with female friendships there was a lot of things that, and also it deals with historical scottish monuments i'd been working for the national trust for scotland as a day job in the past and so there was just a lot of kind of um stuff that coalesced in my mind that came together in that thriller and it just seemed to be the right time to write it um and then once i'd one, you know l connell was a bit of a sort of down and down by the water was i suppose testing the water a little bit with l connell and uh once but once it was out i just had the bug and uh you know you can stay is the fastest book i've ever written it was written in about two two less than three months um oh, during man. the second lockdown i just got my head down and i just couldn't let go of the idea it actually came to me while i was researching the final set of edits for down by the water um it came up the the the, the impetus the stimulus for the premise came up in in that research and um i just kind of couldn't let it go and and you mentioned there that obviously you you write these more modern uh, day books uh, under 
a pseudonym, El Connell. Um, what was the thinking behind that? Was it to try and separate, you know, find a new audience because you'd written the historical stuff so they wouldn't necessarily follow you to crime and things like that? Um, yeah, it wasn't so much about finding a new audience. It was kind of about se- separating them in my own mind, the right, threads okay. of them. I wanted the total freedom to not sort of think, well, I didn't I didn't want somebody to pick up a book with my name on it and feel betrayed because it was so different to okay. Hourglass Factory and Amber Shadows or to kind of feel pressured into writing in that under that name. Also, I feel like the having a pseudonym as well, you know, it, it kind of gives you the freedom as well to like go to places that you that you wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. under your mm-hmm. own name. Yeah. I know there's this whole thing like like other writers that I've known who have, have said they've been so excited to go into bookshops and see books with um, their name on it. And <laughs> this sounds really horrible and really ungrateful, but I, it kind of makes me feel a bit nauseous. It's very exposing, you know, and mm-hmm. um, that was something that I really struggled with. I was so, so, so happy to have a book deal and to have Hourglass Factory out in the world and then to be commissioned to write Amber Shadows and to do all the research on that. And I absolutely love writing. I'm one of these like ridiculous writers who actually enjoys writing because some most writers <laughs> you talk to, they're like, oh, I hate it. Um, but yeah, I actually really love the the hunkering down and um, just getting on with the work kind of process and um, getting the book out there, I find can feel really, yeah, just I was surprised at how vulnerable I felt and how... Um, just how sort of exposed and so having writing certainly writing stuff that was darker and in in some ways and down by the water certainly a lot more personal Mm -hmm. than uh having the kind of um it felt like a little bit of a cloak of that pseudonym Mm -hmm. just helped a little bit with the writing of it um but also um yeah there was just there was just separating it as in terms of like modern and historical um more sort of prosaic reason. <laughs> and how do you? I kind of wonder the practical side of a pseudonym. You know, how do you come up with a name? And and how much of a person do you create? Do you create a whole bio of this fake person, and <laughs> you kind of run their Twitter handle, you know, separately and stuff. And you know, how does that all work? I kind of wish that I did actually. So I'm a really big fan of drag, and I've always wanted to be a drag queen or a, <laughs> you know a burlesque artist. And um, so and the idea of like having a persona has always been incredibly exciting to me. I sort of. I remember having this like fantasy in the early days of starting to write where I thought oh you know I'll I'll uh I'll dress up in ridiculous clothes and like have a martini at 11 a.m and like <laughs> write these fantastical novels Lucy um, would never not... drink this but L <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. L. um it's um yeah so it's not quite as glamorous as that but I do wear red lipstick when I'm writing as El Connell I don't know why it's just a sort of differentiating habit that I've picked up um it was sort of started as a bit of a silly as a sort of silly way to amuse myself when I went to cafes or the library to write as O'Connell, but now it's kind of stuck. Um, but yeah, how did I pick the name? Um, L, so L, L, L is my initial, um, L, uh, but I didn't want to be an initial because it's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to talk about this without implying that I'm slagging off writers who have done that. And I absolutely don't want to do that because I think everyone's got their own reasons for their pseudonym their persona the names they publish under but there is a massive tradition in publishing of encouraging women to hide their gender yeah. Yeah. in on, yeah. on the grounds that like men don't buy books written by women yeah. and uh, and i just really wanted to take a stand against that and say that i you know i'm not interested in male readers that are not interested they're not going to like my books anyway and i don't want them to read my books and i don't care so i really wanted my name to 
be a woman's name um and also i mean l is she in french so it kind of worked that way um connell is my nana's uh, my nana's maiden name and it is the the sort of scottish wing of the family so i just really wanted to use that my nana also nice. um she passed away 10 or 15 years ago but she was the writer in the family and uh she she never published any novels but she wrote a column for her local newspaper she wrote a beautiful um memoir about my caring for my granddad who had dementia and i just i don't know i just really wanted to kind of honor as well that name because i feel i you know i sort of feel a connection to her like that's maybe where i got the, the writing bug from yeah well, that's 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 a nice connection there yeah, and yeah. when you when you write as El Connell, you've you've said the lipstick <laughs> changes, but um, did it did it take you time to find a different voice in your own writing, or did it just come naturally when you changed the setting and told a different kind of story? So I'd been writing short stories for a while, and they'd always been quite different, both to my novels and also to each other. So I, I always found that short stories was a kind of place where I could experiment with different voices and different. Um, different different types of writing not 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 necessarily kind of hugely experimental but just very subtle differences you know in um characterization and maybe creating something that's more realistic when i've been used to writing stuff that's a little bit more over the top or fantastical mm-hmm. um so in that sense i didn't consciously try to alter the voice at all and i think it probably did develop during the first draft of um, Down by the Water, somebody asked this question recently, actually, in an event about um, creating characters and, and whether whether as an author you, you plot or you, you um, plan your characters yeah. um, first or whether you kind of just dive in. And I definitely kind of, I definitely err on the on the side of just diving in because I, because I think just knowing what you know now about the, the knowing what I know now about the publishing process um, and the writing process itself, you know you're going to revise so many times. So when even when I write a first draft, it's like it's not even draft one; it's draft zero. And so in that sense, then finding the voice probably did take a good few chapters. But by that point, you know you're kind of into it. That's almost like yeah. the warm up and act, and then you know you're going to go back and revise that once yeah. you're comfortable in that voice. So I think it did change a little bit. I think. Yeah, I think there's there's a detachment certainly, um, to which is kind of maybe that's the wrong word. I don't know detachment, but there's a um, there's a simplicity I think to the Elconnell books. Maybe I'm not quite concentrating, so I'm not quite um, so indulging my kind of sense of like wanting to have fun and describe everything and indulge in all these like sensory details of a historical world. Like there's yeah, a simplicity yeah. to the storytelling that I'm. I'm sort of quite committed to just, I want to make it a really, really, I want to make the Elconnell books really readable and really focus on just mm. um, trying to tell the story and, and scare the reader. <laughs> and what's your what's your process when you come to write? You know, do you have like a time of day? Do you kind of try and write for a few hours or do you, or do you try and write for the whole day? What, what's, your, what's your routine? So it's really changed just um, because the, obviously like with, pandemic and having kids like domestic circumstances are just kind of constantly changing um at the moment so well for writing you can stay then it was that was written in second lockdown uh and so my i would arrange times with my partner where i could go off and write in the bedroom and i would it was written over winter so um i would just tuck myself up in bed a lot of the time uh with lots of tea and coffee and chocolate 
and just kind of get that done and that those were the moments in which the kids were not allowed in the bedroom because you know yeah. I was working and that was my space I also wrote a little bit of it in cafes so if we took the kids to the museum then maybe we'd do a bit of tag teaming it he'd take the kids around the museum and I'd write for an hour in the cafe and then we'd we'd swap over um so that was that at the moment then my kids are in nursery three days a week so I tend to try and get as much work done on those three days as possible whether that's writing a little bit at home and then when I kind of feel myself flagging I'll maybe head to the library and work there for an hour I tend to find that I I don't I've got quite a I've got quite a long I I can have quite a long attention span for writing but it has to be in bursts and it has to involve a change of scene so I can do an hour in a cafe and then take a break and then do an hour at home but I couldn't Mm. do two hours in one stretch kind of thing yeah yeah and and you you said there uh, earlier that you know, in in sort of finding your voice as El Connor, you, you wrote those first few chapters knowing that they would be revised. Um, are you someone that does that, that pushes through to the end of that first draft and then revises? You don't revise as you go then? I want to say yes. I think largely speaking, yes. However, I am trying to learn more and more when something's not working out that it's easier sometimes to unpick less than it's to like fly on through it and then you've got the whole thing to unpick um yeah I kind of I kind of don't like stopping things midway through with down by the water then I think I did plow through I did just keep playing through because I knew roughly if I know the story that I'm telling is still on a kind of forward drive then I will just push through and then there's all the things that you can sort out in a second draft like characterization tweaks to character um, whether that's sort of through description or dialogue tweaks to setting um but if you know that the story is kind of veered off a tangent or you know that there's a kind of fundamental fault like there's a, a character that you really need to have introduced from the beginning and you've just plonked them in um in the middle of the book that is probably when I would take a break and and start to revise before yeah. progressing with the story. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the moment I've just given up on a um I've just abandoned a an El Connell book that I I wrote sixty thousand words of. Oh, and wow. it was a brutal decision. It really was a brutal decision, but it was just I could I yeah, I, I just knew that it wasn't um it wasn't working the way I wanted it to. Um it was growing arms and legs and the El Connell books are absolutely not in my mind I don't want them to grow arms and legs I want them yeah. to be very clean very streamlined mm-hmm. stories that take a particular interest of mine and kind of push it through to its most horrific um, conclusion or end point <laughs> but um but yeah I, I, I don't want them to be kind of to have sort of epic um side plots and and you know saga style backstories I see that that's I think that's quite a difficult thing to make isn't it you know that's you know when you know something's not working when to chuck something and there's yeah. always stuff you can use i suppose and you know you don't throw away for good for you know but yeah it's when you get that far in that's that's that's, that's quite a brave move i think um and, brave or and, stupid i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned that your latest book was um you can stay which came out in april 2022 so why don't you tell us a little bit about what that book's about Sure. So um, You Can Stay is um, a psychological thriller. It is is largely inspired by my absolute love and worship of um, Stephen King's novel Misery. Um, 
And but it, but the, the stimulus for it uh, came about when I was like I said when I was researching Down by the Water I um, needed to I wanted to create a character in Down by the Water who had a, an army background and so I decided I was going to read some of the um, SAS Who Dares Wins um, ex Special Forces soldiers autobiographies mm-hmm. and the, the first one I picked up was Ollie Ollerton's it's called Breakpoint uh, Break it's really really fantastic book and uh, he. In it, he describes an anecdote of when he was doing the escape and evade training where you have to escape on the hills on on the run from a hunter force. And he describes how uh, some of the soldiers would uh, knock on farmhouse doors and ask if they could just kind of sneak into somebody's barn or take shelter in their house. Sometimes you get given a fry up if you're lucky. It's strictly (laughs) against the rules, but they all do it anyway. Um, and, uh, And this just sort of struck me. I think I'd actually just watched a rerun of misery on netflix maybe a few nights before um and it just struck me in my mind i thought god what if you knock on the wrong farmhouse door i mean Mm. that would be a that would be a disaster um and in the way to know in the way the sort of warped mind of a of anyone who writes kind of dark crime or horror or psychological fiction that that idea just kind of like unspooled and ran um, so it's a book about uh, Connor, who is a, a 26-year-old serving Royal Marine. Um, he's 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 not in the best stage of his life. He's kind of um, a little bit tired in his career, and his his partner has just left him um, with it, uh, taking taking with her uh, their young daughter, um, and he he thinks that by trying out for special forces, he can prove to her that he is. He's a sort of serious man. He's he's going somewhere with his career. He and uh, he thinks that in doing so, he'll kind of win her back and that they'll they'll um, create this perfect family unit and, and all live together happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Um, the training is obviously really hard and really grueling. Uh, and then when he's in the middle of this escape and evade exercise, um, several of his colleagues are taken, but he manages to escape. Um, and beds down in a bothy um, where he is discovered by a local uh, farm owner called Ailey, uh, who invites him in and says that she can that he can stay in her cottage and she'll feed him. Uh, and uh, he makes the wrong decision. Uh, Ailey turns out to be not quite what she seems, not quite as wholesome <laughs> as she seems. Uh, not quite the Annie. Well, yeah, perhaps the Annie Wilkes of Bodmin Moor, um, but in a slightly different kind of uh, with slightly different uh, interests and uh, MOs to Annie Wilkes. Um, so, yeah, I think nice. anything more than that would be a bit of a spoiler. That, that, that sounds great. But, yeah. yeah, and I can almost see when you describe that story how, you, you know, as a writer, you could take that idea and just write it as quickly as you did there because, it, it, it yeah, it's one of these ideas that you go, that's, that's great, I just want to focus on this entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Is the idea that uh, you you will continue to write El Connell books, or will there be more Lucy Ribchester books as well? Are you going to keep both names going in the future? Yeah, that's the plan. So the latest book that I've written, um, because when things began to open up again, I did find that I had some time on my hands to get back into library research. Uh, so I've picked up on a book that I started writing a long time ago. Um, uh, it's set in 18th century Edinburgh and it's all about the Edinburgh Musical Society and the um, the kind of uh, migratory nature, I suppose, of of Edinburgh's kind of cultural and social scene in, during mm-hmm. the Enlightenment. Um, it's 
called Murder Ballad, and it is out on submission right now. So I'm, oh, nice. I'm bricking it. Very exciting. Um, and really hoping that it will find its way out into the world and will find a publisher. But that's a Lucy Ribchester novel. That's a historical novel. Um, it's not quite in the same vein as Hourglass Factory and Amber Shadows, but it is. it does have the same kind of hallmarks of being a little bit larger than life and yeah. containing a murder. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> nice. yeah, um, there's that and uh, and yeah I would really really like to keep both names going and to write both because I just think it, it just gives me freedom to explore two completely different two completely different technical sides of writing um, and craft I think mm-hmm. but also like um, really different uh, really different ideas you know um, I am really interested in I'm really interested in um interpersonal relationships and i'm in the in the l connell books that i'm particularly interested in exploring kind of i suppose what you call like microaggressions and behaviors that kind of start on a sliding scale of like Mm. social sociable that descend into antisocial through toxic through criminal um and that's something that i think you can only do or that makes sense to me in a kind of contemporary context so that's something i want to keep doing with the l connell books um and then for the the Lucy Ribchester books, there's so many periods of history that I just really want to go like groveling around in and grubbing around in and finding um, little anecdotes. And I'm just I'm just really really fascinated in the past and in how we kind of carry it around with us in ways that we don't even notice. You know, walking around Edinburgh, for example, walking up and down the Royal Mile in the old town, there's just so much history hidden yeah, in those yeah, walls. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's begging to get out. Um, so yeah, I think. I'd, I'd definitely like to, if the opportunities are there, I'd like to keep both going. Excellent. Nice. And and you also do some, you mentioned earlier, some side, side hustling. You're a tutor yeah. for English, you freelance yep. journalist, uh, stuff's been in The Guardian, The Times, do some do some dance writing, yeah, mentoring service. I mean, how do you find the time for all this stuff? Well, it's not all happening at once. You know, you go through sort of um, deathly quiet periods like any freelancer and then it all comes at once and it's <laughs> between the eyes. Um, yeah, so for most of the festival and even the month before the festival these days, then I'll, I'll be writing pretty much exclusively for the list, doing interviews, features, previews, then going out, just riding around Edinburgh on my bike, seeing as much theatre and dance as I can. Um, and then September time comes, you have a little bit of a slump and then, other stuff pops up so last year I find myself mentoring um, a a writer um, on a fantasy YA novel that was a really rewarding experience I teach workshops when I can Um, it's just a bit of a juggling act but I think you know having having good diary skills (laughs) just trying to keep it like a rigorous diary kind of helps and I love it you know it keeps I think the chopping and changing kind of keeps for me anyway like it keeps my brain active um, Mm. and keeps me it just kind of keeps me feeling sort of alive and stimulated. I never get bored doing any one aspect of my work because it chops and changes. Yeah. And I did, used to think that like the absolute dream would be to only write fiction and to only be able to write fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the second year of my um, book deal with um, Hourglass Factory, when I was writing Amber Shadows, that was pretty much what I was doing. And I was actually really miserable. You know, I felt really sort of just just tied to... Uh, fiction and kind of bored and not incentivized to kind of seek work elsewhere and actually the balance is something that makes me really happy you know as a writer I think you've got to get out there and like live and learn things um I'm just taking on a project just now that's going to enable me to do quite a lot of research into art history um and you know 
like with my work with the National Trust for Scotland, ideas come from that, you know. Yeah. Um, I did some work with Edinburgh University's informatics department a couple of years ago, freelance work. And uh, it was just, it was just mind blowing, like the, the, the amount that I learned about the tech industry. And it's given me ideas for like at least two novels that I want to develop, <laughs> you know. So I think it's just such a fundamental part of my work. I don't think I'd ever want to give um, any of it up. Excellent. Nice. And um, so you, you've got this, the, the Lucy Ribchester book out on submission just now. You've just binned in El Connell. What, <laughs> what, what, uh, what is in the pipeline? Are you going to start another El Connell book? I have just started another El Connell, yes, which is where that notebook's going to come really, really handy. <laughs> um, I, Good plug. Yeah, I, so I, like I binned the El Connell book because I had a more streamlined idea that's kind of thematically overlapping with, um, you can say, um, one of the things I wanted to explore and you can say so I mean as you'll know yourself like from writing there's so many ideas that kind of come together like little sort of pockets of meteorites and and, and just blast together into the, what forms the idea so it wasn't just Stephen King and Misery it wasn't just the SAS thing there was also this idea of like um, the different ways in which men have freedom or have complacency towards freedom in um this in the contemporary world as opposed to women so for example i could never imagine a woman knocking on a, a strange man's door and saying can i come into your yeah. house especially yeah. if it was a little bit yeah. strange but you know the idea that a man can do that because a woman is not threatening she's not frightening there is that idea that like there's maybe more freedom involved um mm -hmm. for men um in that respect and i want to kind of continue this theme but slightly look at it in from a slightly different slant you know the idea of um the different freedoms that men and women have in social settings uh, because of this kind of this this fear of violence that hangs over the head of women cool I so. that sounds very exciting I like, I like the sound of that a lot thanks what was the last book that you read the last book I read was Dorothy Coombson's My Other Husband and it is absolutely brilliant um, I am actually really angry and ashamed that it's the first of Dorothy Coombson's 18 novels that I've read. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's a psychological thriller, but it is so psychologically, um, like, scalpel accurate in terms of behaviour, microaggressions, the way she gets under the skin of abusive um, relationships and how insidious that kind of, um, behavior can be uh, as well it deals with racism in the workplace it's just a really really in-depth thoroughly rich and brilliant book um, nice. yeah so I was she was she was such a, a wonderful author to have discovered and now I've got a big back catalogue yeah, to go back to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about the last film that you watched the last film what was the last film I watched oh that's a good question you know, I've been watching so much Drag Race and Strictly. I haven't watched a <laughs> film in ages. I started watching Dahmer last night. I'm kind of, I've been oh, reading all the, the sort Netflix of, one, yeah. yeah, controversial um, articles about it. And I'm kind of curious about it. What was the last film I watched? Oh, um, I'm sure I watched a film recently. <laughs> oh, what? That's going to really annoy me. It's awful. Me. It's going to question uh, your mind goes blank and you suddenly can't think of any film you've ever watched in your entire life yeah exactly exactly no i did watch something during the i'm sure i watched a film during the festival 
I went to the cinema as well, like not that long ago. <laughs> Sorry, my mind is obviously whatever it was was obviously great. It was, it was obviously yeah. amazing. <laughs> such an impression. No, but I want to watch um, Flux Gourmet, the new Peter Strickland film. I love oh, yeah, Peter yeah. Strickland, um, and one of my favorite films is The Duke of Burgundy. I just think it's amazing and so um, beautiful and surreal and psychologically nuanced and twisted and yeah so i'm really excited to see flux for me cool and uh well you mentioned you were watching dammer but what was the last tv show that you've sort of finished a series or something like that we watched a series of um the second series of the capture i think that's a really interesting show um and when i watched the first series i was actually working in um edinburgh university's informatics and i was working with somebody who um whose research focused on um on AI and kind of neural learning, neural like artificial intelligence mm-hmm. learning um, machine, machine learning AI. And um, and I asked him, uh, so, you know, how realistic is this show? Come on. And he was like, very. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's, that's quite sobering. So, so yeah, I find that um, very interesting, very twisty and uh, yeah, and very, uh, with a lot of kind of food for thought. Excellent. Nice. And and the very, very last thing we do is a super quick fire either or and I will say there's no right answer here apart from okay. one. But we'll start off with historical crime or modern day crime. Oh god, both <laughs> Sitting on the fence there. If I had to pick yeah. one. Oh if I had to pick one. Uh ooh. Historical, because modern day will turn into historical one of these days. Unbelievable, just through through Ellie under the bus there. <laughs> uh, uh, TV or cinema? Cinema, always. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Uh, early Bird, I think. Uh, music or no music when you're writing? No music. And last one, real book or ebook? Oh, are you even asking me this? Real book, real. Oh, book. I know. Real Historical book. author. There's no bus. way ebook was no, going to win. No, I can't even. Oh, I, I don't have a Kindle. I don't. I borrowed one from my mum when the kids were born because I was like, well, it'll probably be easier, you know, especially if I'm doing night feeds and I want to read. But I just can't do it. I can't do it. I love the smell of a book, even oh, if God, it's a new book, an old book. Those that have these smell. <laughs> Tarek is very pro ebook. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, very, very few people are, so it, I feel I have to, I have I know. to standing up give them exactly. a voice. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, think I, I mean, I, I agree on the, on the real book front. So, yeah, and the smell of a new book is great. Yeah, yeah but you're both, you're both very odd people <laughs> <laughs> smelling your books. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks very much to Lucy for that episode. I thought that was uh, really interesting. And Yeah, it was great. You know, a very brave move that she had at the start of, I know, of her novel it? writing career to change from, you know, in quotes, a big agent to uh, a, a smaller agent because she felt that that's what the book needed. You know, that that's, you know, admirable. It was the right decision given her success, but also quite a scary decision to make it. Yeah, at that I mean, stage. We've, we've chatted to a few folk who have, who have done that in in the past, and I think they would all say that you have to do what's right for you and your your book and your career. But it's still, you know, the, such a long process to find an agent. When you find one, you almost feel like you don't want to let go, no matter if, even if that's actually harming your career. So yeah, it's, it's quite a tough one, isn't it? 
yeah no definitely um but yeah as as it has been proven by not just by lucy but as you say by some of our other guests it mm-hmm. it can be the right thing so i suppose it's a question of sort of trusting your instinct on that and 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 taking that step can can help further your career so yeah th- thanks to lucy uh, for coming on obviously the latest l connor book is is out now and uh, we'll put links to her books both as lucy and l in the podcast description but next week we're staying in the world of crime but traveling across the world yeah we're going down under in a very exciting episode we're chatting with jane harper uh, i'm a pretty huge fan of um the Dry, of course, was her debut novel, which was made into the film with Eric Banner. Um, and this is a great film. News, I've not uh, read it's good, very good, yeah. yeah. Um, and her, her latest novel is Exiles, which um, is out in the UK at least very, very shortly mm-hmm. uh, next week, in fact. Um, and that's the final novel with Aaron Falk, her kind of um, investigative protagonist uh, from The Dry. Yeah, and we chat to her about that. Why? You know, not many authors would sort of say, this is my last novel with this character Yeah, when it's yeah. been successful. Uh, and we chat to her about why she wanted to do that. Um, and yeah, just a really interesting st- story. We've spoken now to a few Australian authors and the Australian literary scene is obviously um, quite different from the UK one, but is definitely a fast-growing scene and in no small part thanks to Jane. I think it was Chris Hammer who we had on who's now obviously a big success as well but he he said that Jane's success was one of the reasons that start, people started paying attention to yeah, uh, Australian right. fiction. Yeah, that, yeah, she's she's a fantastic author and it's a really fun interview and I think there'll be a lot, of, a lot of good stuff in there for everyone to listen to. Yeah, definitely. So um, if you enjoyed this episode please do take the time to rate and reviews on your favorite podcast app that really helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast and of course if anybody wants to get in touch they can always drop us a tweet in the twitter machine which is at uk page one or they can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk and there's also some kind of master i was going to say do you want to go do you want to have a go at that Tarek? I, I wouldn't even know where to begin so we're uh, at page one pod on writing.exchange you can find us there it's not difficult i know it actually sounds it sounds simple every time you say it i feel by the time we get to episode 200 i might i might have it locked in my head a little bit Excellent. i struggle with the bloody email address I'll you do it, it does it, w- the number of times we have to re-record the the email addresses <laughs> is embarrassing frankly uh, but yeah have a great week and we'll see you next episode see you later Thank you.